We have a really fascinating interview today with John Backus. Um, John is the CEO of LA Care, which is the largest um, public health plan in the US. And uh, he's been in the healthcare industry forever. And he takes a very humanistic approach, a very empathetic approach to healthcare uh, and a very logical approach of how to uh, bring in sensible economics and um, compassion into the healthcare industry and to figure out how to do that within the system that we currently have and the system that we aspire to have. Um, so I think he's at that crossroads. I think he's doing the important work that needs to be done. And he's also clarifying a lot of things uh, around the confusion in the healthcare system. So um, yeah, really fascinating interview. Uh, I hope everybody pays attention to this and uh, let me know what you think. So John, th thank you very much for, uh, for joining me today. I, I know you're a busy man, so I appreciate your time. My pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just, we'll, we'll go right in. Um, so, okay, you have a unique story. Um, most people, I think, study medicine for decades and then, you know, have this career in healthcare. Um, you designed a logo for an HMO and that was your way into, into the industry. Um, and now, obviously, there's C you're the CEO of the largest uh, public health plan. Uh, in the nation and uh, the CEO of the fastest growing uh, privately held company in the U.S. So uh, how do you do that? What was that like? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was very lucky. Um, I, had, uh, I had a day job after I graduated from college. I sort of was in city planning and I was working for a county planning agency, but I had a freelance graphic design business on the side and uh, I was approached and this is back in the Albany, New York area. And I was approached by somebody who said, hey, we're starting an HMO and we need a logo. And of course I said, what's an HMO? <laughs> How do you spell that? And um, so I entered the competition and they picked my logo. And then they came to me and said, well, you know, it was brand new, it hadn't started yet. Uh, we're gonna need some marketing material. Can help us with that? We're gonna need that. So I did all that. And then meanwhile, my, um, and kept my day job. And then after about 18 months, uh, I was working for a consulting firm and it was clear that they were going, uh, they didn't have a, enough backlog of work. And I, so I went to the guys running the HMO and I said, you know, I've been, it's been fun doing this, but I got to go look for a real full-time job because my day job is not secure. And they said, well, why don't you work for us? I said, well, what would I do? And they said, oh, you can do sales. And I said, I, I'm not a salesman. They said, well, we think you are. So they hired me and I started out as a sales rep for this brand new HMO. And uh, I called my mom and told her and she said, HBO, you don't know anything about television. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, then a year later, I was the head of sales. And then 12 years later, when the guy who hired me retired, he tapped me to succeed him as a CEO. So number one, I had a great opportunity. I had a great mentor in this guy that hired me in the first place. And um, I had a lot of fun doing it and was quite passionate about it once I got into it. Wow, that, that's an incredible story. Um, I, I always love listening to backstories that aren't traditional and where people have kind of found their way into something they really are amazing at. Uh, and sometimes it takes people pulling that out of you first uh, that you don't see yourself. So that's always great to hear. Well, I wanted uh, to be an architect, so it's not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time. I mean, you're young. Uh, Go so for it. I also want to learn how to play the piano, so I better get started. Nice. Well, did you use quarantine to, to brush up on piano lessons? No, I've never taken piano lessons in my life. <laughs> I don't wow. have a piano. It's something I want to do. It's on my bucket list. You know? I, I like it. Uh, I, I don't think that ambition should ever fade. Um, uh, and that, I, so I'm assuming from from the way you've gotten into the healthcare industry that you've had a unique lens on it too, and and that you probably don't come with maybe some of the I don't know if this is the right word to use, but maybe some of the baggage that people who um, have that traditional pedigree in healthcare have. So I wonder if that's led to your work with LA Care now. Is that is that fair to say? Well, um, I think. A fair way to say it is once I got into healthcare at this particular plan in Albany, New York, um, 
I, I within a few months I was like, oh my God, I love this. This is what I want to do. And I think it happened one day when we were a staff model, which meant we owned our own facilities and the doctors were employed by the plan. And I went into um, our main health center and I saw these people sitting there just coming in and checked in. And I thought, wow, we're doing something that's making a difference in people's lives every day. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want to do this. And that began the passion. And a few years ago, um, about 15 years ago, I went to work for a health plan in Boston that was a new start. And we only worked with dual eligibles. And these are people who are um, on both Medicare and Medicaid. Mm. So they're over 65 and they're living in poverty. And that was the other turning point career-wise because I saw really firsthand what the impacts of the so-called social determinants of health are on people. I mean, you know, your health status and your ability to handle illness and disease are really determined not by your health insurance, but are determined by where you were born, how you grew up, and the equality of your life compared to other people. And it became very apparent in this situation in Boston with this health plan that, again, we were going to make a difference in these people's lives because we figured out as we met people and did their care plans that well, really most of their issues have to do with the fact they don't have proper food, they're not in a good housing situation, they don't have air conditioning and they've got asthma or they live on the third floor and they can barely walk. And we began to figure out, well, if we address those things, we're gonna reduce their healthcare expenses. So that changed my direction. And so when I got the opportunity to come to LA Care, which is a totally Medicaid population, and we do have duals as well. Um, I said, boy, this is a chance to uh, be a catalyst for change because LA Care had gotten quite large as a result of the Affordable Care Act expansion. And I think when I got here, we every sixth person in the county was a member of the plan. Now it's every fifth person. Wow. And I said, that's a catalyst for change base. And so, I've been here five years, and uh, I think we're making we're making changes. That's great, yeah. And I and I want to talk about the ACA, um, and and obviously a lot of a lot of what you just mentioned is of great interest um, for everyone, really, but especially our audience too. Um, some of those young invincibles who don't see themselves as uh, affected by the healthcare system, but they are. Um, but you had also said uh, the social detriments of health or determinants of health. Sorry. Um, well, they are you, detriments too. <laughs> can you explain what what they are and what what that is? Well, it's a horrible expression. I hate it, but it's become the expression uh, du jour. It basically is saying all of the things that make up your life, your where you were born, where you live. Um, how much income you have, how much education you have. Those are all social determinants that kind of determine where you are in life, status-wise. And we know that poverty, lack of nutrition, lack of education, all contribute to poor health outcomes. So what people are now saying is, oh, we should address the social determinants of health. Well, of course we should. And really what I call them is um, roadblocks to somebody getting the right care in the right place at the right time. And uh, so by expanding our view of the patient as more than a filling out a physical form, yeah. examining them, what happens when you go home? And that's what we learned at uh, the place in Boston called Senior Whole Health. Because you ask a patient how they are, and they'll go, oh, I'm fine, you know, I'm fine. Well, you go to their home, and you see, oh, my God, here's what's really going on. Um, and you can see how their health status is affected by the conditions they live in. So however we call it, <clears throat> it's really looking at the whole person and trying to synergistically begin to address those other things. Because otherwise, particularly in a plan like LA Care, where we're 
custodians of public funds, we're wasting money if we keep taking the person with asthma yeah. and keep admitting them to the hospital, admitting to the hospital. Let's buy the poor guy an air conditioner, put it in the apartment, and maybe you won't go to the ER as much. Yeah. I mean, that's a very crude, but it's a typical example of what I'm talking about. Yeah. So if we do that, we have to pay for that air conditioner out of our profits because we can't claim it as a medical expense. So that's what we mean by social determinants. Gotcha. Okay. That definitely clarifies that. Um, I wasn't familiar with that term. That's interesting. Um, and to, to do what you're talking about as the solution to me makes common sense. It seems empathetic. It seems, uh, economical as well. It just, I feel like the whole system can benefit from addressing the, the root cause. And I, I think we're just plagued in this country of never, uh, approaching the root cause and just putting band-aids on everything. But, um, so what is that? What is that called? What does that look like? Is that public option? And that's something I want to ask you too, is, uh, if you could kind of help clarify, because I think healthcare is confusing. It just anyways, but especially for a younger audience, um, including myself, like I, I just, I get very confused between the differences between public option, uh, options, uh, single payer, uh, healthcare for all healthcare for some, like, so what, what do you call what you are describing? Is LA care doing that now? <laughs> and we're like, doing, <laughs> we're, we're doing a little bit of it because we, um, you know, as a Medicaid plan, we're allowed to build into our rates a 2% operating margin. And um, although they're going to cut that now to one and a half percent because of the recession, but that's the money we can use to play with, to do these things. Because I said, buying an air conditioner or buying yeah. food for someone is not a Medicaid expense, which is crazy. Um, so I think we need to separate what I was describing from the public option single payer. That's another category of stuff. Let's park that for a minute. Sure. What I'm talking about is building a new health plan that integrates social services that people are entitled to that would help address these social determinants of health but have them all delivered through a single synergistic approach to your life. We'll have members and we can tell that food security is a problem. So what do we do? We say, well, here's the number you call to apply for CalFresh or you go online or do it, or we'll make a warm transfer, but we're making the member go through another bureaucracy where they have to, really waste precious resources filling out paperwork with the information that we've already had. So why can't an organization like ours that assesses your whole health, including these social determinants, and we see that you have gaps that could be addressed by existing programs, why don't we become the channel and the agent for delivering those? That would be a new health plan. Wow. And considering in California, we have almost a third of the state, 13 million people out of almost 40 million are on Medicaid. That means we've got 13 million people or a third of the state living in poverty or near poverty. And we should be doing more to help those people get out of that situation. I mean, yep. the fondest thing would be for me is if we could say, well, you know, we don't need Medicaid anymore because everybody's working and, or they have, you know, their insurance covered, but I digress. But that that's really what I'm talking about, expanding the role of a health plan to cover these things that we're assessing and are aware of. Now, the discussion about the single payer and the public option, that is a, a separate thing, and I'd be happy to talk about that when you're ready. Okay, yeah, definitely, I wanna get into that. Um, but this kind of made me think as well, of like where, you know, you're, you're kind of beholden to public funding, um, so, yeah. Is this something that is done through legislation? Is this, how do you convince, is it Congress that you need to convince? Who do you have to convince of your vision? That seems very clear to me. And then where are some of those roadblocks? I know these are, these are probably like weightier well, questions than maybe we understand. If we're going to use the existing construct of Medicaid to do it, it would require federal action and state action because Medicaid is a program that is shared between the states and the federal government. I, most people don't understand 
that Medicare and Medicaid were passed at the same time in 1965. And Medicare was a program for people who were over 65 or disabled, and it's uniform across the country. Medicaid was created to be a program for people whose income fell below the poverty level. And it was up to the states had to raise their hands and say, okay, I'm in, and the states put up 50% of the money. So it took a while for all the states to get on board. In fact, Arizona didn't come in until the 1980s. But by having the states participate, they also got to have a say in how it was done. So you have 50 different variations of Medicaid depending on the state you're in. And um, so this, to, to make the plan larger, to bring under its umbrella the delivery of social safety net services would also, would require congressional and state action. Mm-hmm. Now, I've suggested, why don't we have a demo? And maybe we can do it right here in LA. So that will be probably how we try something like this out is through a demonstration. And uh, certainly the COVID pandemic and the resulting recession may actually provide an opportunity to do that because the outcome would be lower expenses. Because if we can address the social needs, then uh, we can reduce the healthcare expenses. Now, interestingly, if you look at other first world countries, we spend the most of any of them on healthcare. I mean, everybody knows that. But we also spend, in terms of government funding, less on social services than those same countries. Yes. Yet, if you look at the combined spend between health and social services, when you add ours up and add up these other first world countries, we're not that much further apart. But what these other countries have done in their organization of things is address the social determinants, like making sure everyone has adequate housing, that everyone has access to food, that everyone has access to education. They've invested that money up front. So when we come along with a health plan and we've got somebody who's very sick or has a lot of chronic conditions, we're spending healthcare dollars after, after all those other things yeah. didn't happen to do it. So that's kind of my thinking is we just need to provide a vehicle where we can address them in a synergistic and integrated way. Great, great answer. Yeah, that that's kind of... I think when you make that economic case is when you break ground. And that's what surprised me is how people just don't see the numbers. Like you're spending right. so much money on inefficient healthcare, where if you can actually approach housing and food and all, and all the other social um, issues that you're talking about, you actually save money and help more people. So that seems very, very clear. Um, but for, you know, whatever reason, I think that that gets held well, up. And, and, you know, there's a, I mean, we have a great, example right here in Los Angeles County, since we have the unfortunate distinction of having the most homeless people anywhere, went up another 13% with the last census in January. So we've got 66,000 people who do not have permanent housing. I think about 16,000 of them are living in their automobiles, uh, but the rest are on the streets. And, uh, because of the Affordable Care Act expansion back in 2014, probably we have probably 25 to 30,000 homeless people in the health plan at any given moment. But think about it. Somebody gets sick, they're found on the sidewalk, passed out, they get hauled in an ambulance. Oh, they're in LA care, boom, bills paid for. When they're ready to be discharged, what kind of solution is it to send them back to the streets? They're just going to wind up coming back again, and they may come back uh, dead on arrival. Yep. So what we've been doing at LA Care in a very small way, again, using our own money, we um, have had a demonstration where we've taken people who are homeless as they come out of the hospital and we put them in um, facilities um, where they can stay for up to 90 days while we evaluate um, we evaluate whether they, we can get them into a permanent housing situation. So uh, those, um, those beds that we pay for for 90 days, yeah, they're expensive, um, but 
not as expensive as yeah. putting in the hospital bill or something like that. So those are the kinds of, um, those are called recuperative care beds. And um, we've done that for over a year now and are getting some really interesting data out of that. Great. That's good to hear. Yeah. And I think a lot of that too goes to messaging. I mean, when that falls back down onto constituents, they hear, you know, I don't want to give someone a home. Like I'm struggling myself. Like why, why are we giving people things for free? It becomes messaged and it becomes propagandized really in a lot of ways that the way people talk about this and frame this issue, I think that makes the public, I think, disinformed on it, which then they're the ones who go and kind of vote for these policies. Um, it, it seems cyclical in that way. And I think when it's told in the way you just said it, um, I think more people would be on board if they really understood not just the economics, but the way people are, are affected as human beings that are caught in this system where they could be helped. Well, even if it, the humaneness of it doesn't appeal to somebody, I would argue that if you're worried about your tax dollars being spent, if we can integrate what I've described, I think we'll spend less of your tax dollars than the way we're doing it today. Yep, and unfortunately, I think that's a bigger driver for a lot of people, but here we are. Um, I do wanna go back to public option, if you're willing, um, sure. to kind of clarify some of these categories and the healthcare debate happening right now. It's obviously a big issue um, for everybody. Can you talk about the differences? Well, sure. Um, of course, the system we have in the United States now is not much of a system. It's um, kind of the Wild West. Yep. And we're stuck with this um, culture where employment is your access to health insurance. Now, this stems from World War II, and we could do a history lesson, but I'll skip that. Um, but we're in that boat. And so for people who are unemployed, retired, that's why we created Medicare, and for people who are poor and not working, that's why we created Medicaid. So we have this private system of insurance companies working with employers, and many of those insurance companies are for-profit, investor-owned, some are not-for-profit, and so forth. And then we have the two government programs, Medicare and Medicaid. Now, when they started out 55 years ago, uh, the government ran them. Um, but actually on Medicare, they contracted out the actual operation of Medicare from day one to Blue Cross plans. So there was never a, you know, a big office building filled with government employees processing claims for Medicare. They contracted out to the Blues so that they could do it for them and it became a nice line of business. Medicaid was turned over to the states and the states did process claims and do all that stuff. And eventually they said, eh, we're not very good at this. So they contracted it out. Now we have 80% of the people on Medicaid are in a health plan like LA Care because the states realized that they didn't have the ability to get the economies they needed for the amount of dollars that were being invested. So they asked managed care companies like us to come in and do it for them. So we get paid a set amount per person per month. We then have to go out and contract with hospitals and doctors to be available. And then we try to add value by doing these health assessments and develop care plans for you that will move you along and hopefully improve your health status along the way. So uh, meanwhile, the employer-based system keeps on going and getting more and more expensive. Part of the reason that it's more expensive is that Medicaid has never been properly funded. It's always been expected. Now, these are poor people. The doctors will take less. And as a result, probably you don't get the same care. Providers have figured out over the last 55 years, all right, I can take Medicaid and I can take Medicare because the commercial insurers will pay me more. So think of it this way. If Medicare is a base rate, Medicaid is underneath it by 30 or 40%. Okay. Commercial plans are probably 30 or 40% above Medicare. So if you're a provider, you want to have a mix. If you want to still be able to take care of Medicaid and Medicare, you need the commercial plans in there. So what we've done over 55 years is create this subsidization of our two public programs 
by the private sector. So they're getting taxed, whether they realize it or not, they're paying more for their health insurance because that money is being used to provide access to people on Medicare, but most importantly for people on Medicaid. But yet, if we talked about having a single payer and your taxes would go up, no, I can't have that. Yep. But if we had that, you might actually uh, be paying much less in taxes than you are paying for your insurance, your contribution, and your employer's contribution. So that's the system we have today. Now, when somebody talks about a single payer, like Bernie did, he's talking about eliminating everything that I just described and say we'll have one government program run by the federal government that will pay all the claims for the providers. The federal government will set the rates. I believe it's a take it or leave it deal for the providers. We never got to the details. But he makes a point. It would be uniform. There wouldn't be all these crazy rules. And it would be easy to understand. And you get a card and you're done. You've got it. You go in and you get the services. Now, the problem I see with a single-payer system is that there's really no incentive in that for innovation and creativity because there's no one else out there. And today... Innovation in what? In the actual healthcare you're providing and medicine? Like, yeah, okay. Exactly. And um, so that's one idea. And it just seems like it would never never in my lifetime and probably yours be passed because it rubs against the grain of the American story of individualism and choice. States' rights and everything else. States' rights and all that. So a public option becomes a choice because it stays within the construct that we're familiar with. And the public option, which was an idea that was introduced in the the Affordable Care Act during its legislative debate in 2010 was included in the House of Representatives version of the bill. And it simply said, there would be a public health plan created in every state that would compete against private commercial plans in the individual insurance market so that there would be a low cost choice that would drive innovation because it would be competing. Hmm. Now, when they sent, they passed it out of the House, sent it over to the Senate, Senator Lieberman, who represented Connecticut, which is the home to insurance. And the home to me. Said, yeah, and said, um, and even though he was a Democrat, he said, if you don't get rid of that, I'll filibuster this bill and it'll never pass. So the Senate and the White House agreed and they dropped it to get the bill over the finish line. So, what does a public option look like then? Well, you have one right here in Los Angeles. LA Care is a public entity health plan, which means we were created under a law passed in the 1990s in California, which was trying to move Medicaid into managed care. And they said, well, to create managed care plans that would not be fickle about the rates and drop in and out, we had a recession, the rates went down and they walked away. We'll create public entity plans that will survive regardless. So there are um, 16 of us here in the state of California and we're the largest of them with 2.2 million members. So it means we operate as a not-for-profit, but we operate under the transparency rules of California's Brown Act. So our board meetings are open to the public Uh, Our board committee meetings are open to the public. Anybody can come and make a statement and we give everybody three minutes and some people come and say really interesting stuff. Some people, I think one woman came with a mandolin one time, played it for us because she wanted uh, music therapy to be a covered benefit. Um, Giving me ideas for when I come. Well, all right. Anyway, (laughs) so... um, When the Affordable Care Act was passed, they also created this um, exchange for people to buy individual insurance. California set up its own exchange called Covered California. LA Care is the only one of the 16 public plans that went into Covered California. 
So here in Los Angeles County, if you go to the exchange, you'll see six plans offered, LA Care and five commercial plans. Well, the first couple of years, we did so-so. By the third and fourth year, we had become the lowest price plan. The lowest price plan, our enrollment skyrocketed. And um, by the time we got to the fifth year, those other plans took notice and they came in with lower rates than we had. So we dropped in this year to fourth instead of first. To me, that's showing exactly what the public option was supposed to do. The competition. I'm a low priced plan. I operate on a 2% margin and I was able to deliver a quality product at a lower price. So they're sharpening their pencils and that's where the innovation comes in. Hmm. They underbid me. Well, you don't think we're sharpening our pencils and we're going to try to underbid them next year. So as a result, prices are going down. So that's why I think the public option needs to be looked at again because I think it would be more palatable to the public than a single payer system. And um, so we're hoping that if the Affordable Care Act survives all the court challenges, and if there's a change in the presidency and the Senate makeup, that they will reconsider amending the Affordable Care Act to put the public option back in and also correct some of the other things that have been taken away during the current administration. So that's what the public option would do. I think it would be within a construct we're familiar with and um, it would seem to be more the American way. Medicare for all is really a single payer system just with a label on it because people like Medicare and you know, like it's, uh, I don't want any of that government insurance, but don't mess with my Medicare, which is one of my favorite kind of things. So, uh, you know, that it's, you know, it's making it more sellable to call it Medicare for all. And I think it's fine to have that debate. Um, I, people say, why well, aren't you worried you'd be out of business? I said, no, I wouldn't, because they would immediately turn around and hire companies like ours to run the thing for them. Yep. Just like we saw when they set up Medicare, they went to the Blue Cross plan and said, well, you know how to pay claims. We don't. So we'll contract with you to pay them. So we would have a role. But I do think that the public option is something we could implement faster than a total turnaround that a single payer would require. And um, my worry is that a single payer, if we take it away from the employers, will save a fortune. That that money will not go to the employees in salaries, that that will go to shareholders. And I get the shareholders should be rewarded. But as we saw with the tax uh, decrease, corporate tax decrease that took place in December of 2017, it didn't trickle down to the workers. Many of those companies used the tax savings to buy back stock, which made the existing stockholders wealthier. So this is all part of the bigger discussion about inequality, which of course feeds into the problem we have with our members and their social determinants of health. Wow. Well, thank you. Um, that was literally just, I, I feel like I just went back to school for a while there. Um, and that was incredibly helpful. Honestly, you put a lot of clarity on the differences, which aren't talked about in that way. Uh, we get little sound bites, and, you know, during the Democratic debates when there was 50,000 people running, you got a half a minute to hear somebody's thoughts on healthcare. So it really, you know, for people who aren't in that industry, we just don't know. So thank you. That was incredibly well I, I like to say healthcare isn't like rocket science it's way more complicated <laughs> nice well i'll let the pros like you uh take care of that um i know we're kind of pressing up on time i don't know what your schedule looks like but i i'd love to talk a little bit about covid19 and i want to talk about sure. the young young invincibles mm -hmm. uh, and if you only have time for one take your pick um but i think both are, are pretty important here um any preference? We, let's do both. It's important. Oh, great. Okay. Thank you. Um, so we brushed on COVID a little bit. Um, 
obviously some of that data has yet to be released on the true impact of what's going on because we're still living in it. But I think it's evident to say that it's having a profound impact on everything from healthcare to mental health, to the economy, to jobs and just everything. Um, so how has this kind of permanently changed healthcare and what are you seeing from your perspective? Well, I suppose the most profound immediate change is the sudden adoption of telemedicine. Hmm. When people said, I'm not going out to catch this or, um, you know, people, but they still needed to consult with a physician, they started calling and Medicaid nationally never reimbursed for telemedicine visits. They said, oh, you got to go to the doctor. It's fraud. So in March, they said, okay, for the duration of the pandemic emergency, um, we'll pay for telephone visits. So what has happened in the last 90 days? Because, you know, Medicare does the same thing now. So you suddenly have people realizing, oh, I can talk to the doctor by phone and that saves me from making, you know, getting in my car, or taking a bus or getting down there at the office and I got what I needed and he wrote me a prescription and that's great. So that is going to be a permanent shift in healthcare. Mm -hmm. We don't know yet all of the fallout from that. It would appear to save money. It would appear to be way more convenient. And the doctors tell me that the no-show rate on telephone visits is almost zero, wow. where the no-show visits on physical appointments is considerably high and a nuisance and, in, and um, you know, a very inefficient use of the doctor's office time. So that's probably the most immediate change we're going to see. We're pressing CMS, which is the Center for Medicaid and Medicaid Services at the federal level, to make this a permanent change. Because our fear is, is that when somebody says, oh, the pandemic's over, then this rule goes away. It's gotta stay, because yeah. people love it. And I think um, it's a good thing. Great. Uh, yeah, me as well. And I've thought we've personally had to use that. Um, we have a five-year-old and uh, different health scenarios in our family. So um, yeah, it's, uh, and I've seen that industry just skyrocket uh, recently. So that's an interesting development. Um, you created a $155 million fund uh, for the health workforce. Can you talk about um, how that came to be and what, and what, where that money goes and what that looks like? Sure. Well, um, over the years, the plan um, developed, uh, you know, we've always been on a 2% margin. We've always operated between 1% and 3%. And uh, the plan built up uh, reserves. Um, which I think right now, maybe 800 million or something. So what we asked the board to do was say, look, this money, which we can't invest in anything weird, it's all got to be going to bonds and things that are very safe. We said, I asked the board if we could take 5% of our unassigned reserves for five years, which at the time I estimated would be 155 million, 31 million a year. And because uh, a certain amount of our reserves are statutory, and then everything over that is unrestricted. So they agreed. And the idea was to address the fact that we have um, a declining number of physicians in the most highly impacted areas in the counties. So South LA, Eastern San Gabriel Valley, the Antelope Valley, you don't find too many doctors around. I mean, you know, you go out to Santa Monica or Beverly Hills and you're tripping over them, they're everywhere. So it makes it very difficult for the people who live in those communities, mostly who are, rely on Medicaid, to be able to get access. So we thought that the um, fund that we created would be used for what we call workforce development and it now has, um, I think it has five components now. The first two were a grant program to allow a clinic or a private practice that wanted to bring a new doctor into the safety net, and that's what we call the docs that take care of Medicaid sure. and uninsured. Mm -hmm. um, we gave them $125,000 uh, that they could use as they saw fit to recruit a new primary care doctor, which were 
internist, pediatricians, family medicine, OBGYN. And then in the second year, we added psychiatry because there's so few psychiatrists in Medicaid. And we said, you can use that money any way you want because we heard that these practices and clinics were having a hard time recruiting doctors because they couldn't pay as much as Kaiser Permanente or some of the academic teaching centers. So this was to give them some money to be competitive. We also said that you will mostly hire doctors who will have huge medical school debt. If they agree to stay three years, will retire 180,000 of their medical wow. school debt. So that gave the practice or the clinic a $305,000 grant that they could use to bring doctors in. Now we started this in September of 2018. We've given out 110 grants so far, and the last I looked, 85 doctors have already been hired and are practicing now that weren't here 18, 20 months ago. Incredible. The third part of the program was to build a pipeline for the future. And one of the problems we have in Medicaid is that there are not health professionals, doctors, nurses, PAs, or nurse practitioners that look like the patients they're taking care of. Mm. And all the studies show that if you see a provider who looks like you or sounds like you, you're going to be more engaged and your health outcomes go up. So we said we got to build a pipeline. So we went to the Charles R. Drew School of Medicine and Science in South LA. It's been training minority physicians for decades. We went to the UCLA Geffen School, which has a special emphasis on recruiting minority students. And we said, we will pay for four full four-year scholarships. You pick the students because we figured they've been doing it for decades. Yeah, We could probably spot the first year student coming in the door and say, that's the one that's going to come back and practice in South LA. So we've now done three years of this. They just announced this year's. So we have 24 Kids, and, well, I shouldn't call them kids. We have 24 young people in school. And um, I will have to say, there was never, we never said anything about quotas or anything, but of the 24, um, 22 are of color, half are women. Um, there are Latinos, there are Asians, and there are African Americans in it. These are the docs we need in the future taking care of the population we have here in Los Angeles that's on Medi-Cal. So we've got two more years and then we'll reevaluate if we can continue to add additional funding. The fourth component we added was another thing aimed at pipeline because once doctors get out of medical school, they have three years of training at or 14 residency slots in five different programs. And um, hopefully that will keep, um, they'll stay here. Because we're thinking after three years, if you're in a safety net provider, it should appeal to you that, oh my God, I'm doing something here that's really important. And yeah. we're hoping that that's the amount of time that gets them to make that a career decision. And then the last piece that we added was for home health workers. There's a program here in California called In-Home Support Services. And if you're on Medicaid and you um, have certain deficiencies and activities of daily living, like you can't bathe yourself, prepare food for yourself, or take care of the house, and you're in, I think there are seven counties where this program's available, and LA is one of them, and is paid for by the city and the county, we noticed, well, that in-home support service worker is with the patient more than we are mm. or that our doctors are. So we thought it might be a good idea to train them because most of them are family members because the beneficiary gets to pick who it is. And I'd say 90% of them are family members. Huh. So um, we, uh, and they all belong to the Service Employees International Union. So we developed a program where they will train um, in-home support service workers for 10 weeks, two and a half hours a week. And we do them in, in uh, language cohorts of about 50. So they're in English, Spanish, Russian, various Chinese dialects and so forth. And um, they 
learn what managed care is. They learn um, observation skills. If you see your client, they call them clients, turning blue, you better call somebody or whatever the other things are. And we also teach, they're also taught how to take care of themselves because when you're a home health worker, you're working in isolation. You do not have a break room you can go to and kvetch with your coworkers about what a jerk the boss is. You're there with the client. Yeah. So uh, we have now trained 3,000 in-home support service workers. And uh, I'm telling you, they love the program. And, every, they all, and then they go through a graduation at the end. And I have... Um, I try to get somebody from LA Care at every graduation. I've done five of them myself, and they are unbelievable. They, some of these people never graduated from anything. They half the time rent caps and gowns. Wow. They play pomp and circumstance. The whole family comes, they're crying babies, grandmas in wheelchairs, there are balloons and flowers all over the place. And they're very proud of what they've accomplished. And I think what we're doing by training these folks is we're gonna help keep their client at home and not wind up in a nursing home. And COVID-19 has shown us that nursing homes can be death traps. So the more we can keep people at home and not in nursing homes, it's gonna improve their quality of life. And I'll tell you one story to end this. I had one of these in-home support service workers come to our board of directors meeting one time to explain what we were doing because I think the board didn't know what I was doing. So anyway, he got up and he said, um, he was a man in his forties. He said, I'm my mother's caregiver. And he said, this program has taught me the difference between my role as her son and my role as her caregiver. And as a result, I'm better at both. Wow. So the board said, okay, how much more money do you want? Mm -hmm. That's great. Anyway, no, that's, so, uh, that's all of the elevating the safety net is trying to expand the um, healthcare workforce so that it aligns with the needs of the people who are responsible for taking care of us. It's an incredible approach. And I just, I wish there was more of you out there um, <laughs> because I think it's, it's really <laughs> effective. And, you know, it's a kind of thing that too, like, I feel like you're playing the long game too, you know, like, some of these things will transpire and we'll see the, the positive effects, uh, you know, in our lifetime and then within maybe a couple of years, but a lot of this will have a long lasting impact. And I think that's, that's what we, we often forget, I think as a society is to really think about a generation or two further of what can we do to, to help the bigger picture. And I think you're doing that work. Um, real quick, if we could just touch on the, the young invincibles air quotes, um, you know, uh, I, I was young once, I'm sure you were as well. Um, and when you're in your twenties, you really don't think you're affected by anything. You don't think you're going to catch anything. You don't think you're going to break anything. Um, and you know, I've said this before in other interviews with other topics, but when you don't have children, when you don't have a mortgage, when you don't really have, you know, stake in things, you kind of do feel invincible and it's easier to feel that way. Um, but that all that that can be very dangerous, especially in a time of COVID and when healthcare, when the healthcare system is largely broken. So, can you speak about that? Can you can you um, tell me uh, what would you say to people who think they're not affected by healthcare because of their age? Well, I think COVID is showing us that no one is invincible. And in the beginning, when um, most of the cases seem to be coming out of nursing homes and jails and affect older people. It was kind of, oh, it's an old person's disease. Well, it's not as we see now. The number of infections is skyrocketing among 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and teenagers. So everybody is affected by it. It's COVID knows no bounds as far as we can tell so far. So to me, that would be exhibit A. Hey, dude, you better have health insurance if you get COVID because if you land in the hospital, it's going to be really expensive. Yeah. But the broader question, I, I heard a young person say this once and I said, this is really great. He was going to buy into the exchange and have to pay out of pocket. And his theory was this. 
For the exchange to work, for insurance to work, it needs a mix of high uters and low utilizers. He said, I'm in my 20s. I'm a low utilizer. By my being in the pool and paying my premium, I'm helping some older person keep the premium lower so they can continue to get coverage when they need it. Wow. So it was sort of a paying forward yeah. kind of um, mentality. And I think that's rare in the United States. I agree. For people to think that they have something to do with society as a whole. But so I would go back to COVID. You could get it. It's going to cost a lot of money if you're not insured. Why take a chance? Yeah. And I think the other attitude that this anonymous person said that I read um, seems to me it's like that's how we get along as a society as we look out for each other. And that's why you should wear your damn mask. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Uh, I say You're that. Welcome. And yes, all, all the time. And I'm still shocked at the amount of people who don't. Um, John, I, I can't thank you enough. This is really a fascinating interview and conversation. And um, first of all, I'm just a, it's a pleasure to meet you and know you. Um, so I thank you for coming on the show and, and I'd love to have you back because there's, there's more I want to talk about. Well, it'd be my pleasure to do it. Even though I am older than dirt, I'd be happy to come back. <laughs> yeah, we, we'd even get to the, the caddy scholarship, <laughs> which is just absolutely amazing in my opinion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they're still, they're still there. We'll talk about it. Okay. Thanks again. Um, and, uh, I look forward to staying in touch with you. Same here. It's been my pleasure and all the best of luck with this effort you're making. It's great. Thanks, John.